You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Uh, first, I want to start off by saying thank you to everyone who came and taught and opened God's Word for us in January. Uh, I know some of you were starting to wonder, like, is preaching a thing that Clint even does anymore around here? Uh, for, for better or worse, I do. Uh, but the truth is, y'all, we, we have an embarrassment of riches around here. God's Word is living and active and at work at so many people. And so God used each of you in, in my life. So thank you for doing that. Uh, today, we're going to hop back into the book of Joshua. So let's turn to Joshua chapter 13, and we find ourselves really in new territory. We're turning a corner. We have reached the end of war in Joshua. So the first 12 chapters have been, well, not chapter 12 so much. The first 11 chapters were really exciting. We had battles and war and huge flooded rivers and huge walls to overcome and, and all these alliances and confederacies and victories. It was amazing. But now the war has come to an end. And so as I was reading this week, I thought about that famous picture from VJ Day, Victory Over Japan Day. And I think, Tom, do we have that picture that we can pull up? You've probably seen it before of the day that World War II ended. August 15th, 1945, finally, World War II is officially over. And y'all, this war had lasted for six years. It involved almost every country in the world. And between 70 and 85 million people had perished. And then on that day, news came that the war had finally ended. And so obviously, huge celebrations busted out. People, they just start smooching each other, I guess. But that wasn't isolated incident. Every city in America, people just flooded the streets and they started celebrating finally the end of this terrible, terrible, costly war. And you say, of course, that's fitting. That's what people should have been doing. Now that the war is over, now is the time for rest. Now it's the time for prosperity. This is the right response. And this is what we would, we would expect in Joshua 13. So if the book of Joshua was a Hollywood movie, that's what chapter 13 would be. It'd be everybody flooding the streets, high-fiving, hugging, smooching, roll credits, bookends. All the major battles are over. The bad guys, the bad guys are all defeated. All the Canaanites, all the ites are gone. But that's not what we find. We don't find rest. We don't find celebration. The credits aren't rolling. In fact, we are only halfway through the book. So what's going on here? That, that's what I want us to try to find out as we read today's passages. Why is Joshua still going? What, what does Joshua still have to teach us for these remaining chapters? I think there's a lot, but I think it really all boils down to, really, really the heart of the matter is how you would answer two questions. How you would who you would identify two people. Number one... Who is your enemy? I mean, really, who is the enemy that you need victory over? Number two, who's your hero? Who's the one that's going to bring that victory? So with those two questions in the back of our mind, let's open to Joshua 13. Verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. 
So from a human perspective so far, there's no question about it, Joshua is the hero. But the, the chapter starts out by saying Joshua is old. And now this has to be Joshua's least favorite verse in all the Bible because first the narrator says it, and then God himself chimes in. And he's not nice about it. He's not like, hey, Joshua, you look great for your age. No, he sells him to his face. You are old. Like really old, Joshua. It's like when my kids crawl on my lap and start pointing out how old my hairs are turning gray. Yeah, I know. You don't have to say it, okay? I'm aware. And God's right. Joshua, at this point, he's between 90 and 100 years old. He is old. And the point the text is trying to make is that he's not dead yet, but he's kind of retiring. He is no longer able to lead the Israelites all over the promised land and charge into battle like he did before. So to put it in modern terms, you know, he's a type of old where if your friends call, anytime they call after about 7 p.m., they have to ask, did I wake you up? <laughs> he's still old enough to, to sink his teeth into a big juicy steak, but they stay there. That kind of old. That's, how, that's what Joshua's doing right now. But you, did you see the tension, the tension in the text? There's still more land to occupy. The job isn't finished, but the hero is too old to continue. Now understand here, what, what's left isn't war. And so it doesn't say there's much land left to conquer. It says there's much land left to possess. And so they simply have to move in and occupy some of the outskirts of the promised land. So there's no more major battles. And then in verse 2 through 6, he's, he begins identifying the next steps God does. And it's, it's the outskirts. It's the very far northern and southern edges of the promised land. And so it's going to take some journeying. It's going to take uh, some effort. And the obvious question, though, here is, is okay, God, but why work it out where you got to take Joshua out of the game before it's all done? I mean, this seems like a bad plan. This is not the plan me or you would probably draw up. Well, I'd remind you, we, we've kind of been in this territory before. You may remember, the book of Joshua begins with a funeral. It begins with God essentially saying, hey, it's time to go conquer all those giants in Canaan, and Moses is dead. And they're going, wait, what? We, Moses is the greatest leader the world has ever known. We can't go do this without Moses. But now, 13 chapters in, we have a little bit of a perspective, don't we? And so let me ask you, 13 chapters in to the book of Joshua, with all the major battles over, what did the death of Moses change about God's promises? Absolutely nothing. They were victorious, just like God said they would be. And so the text is wanting us again to ask the question, so who's the real hero? All the human leaders, as great as they may be, they will pass away, but God's promises will never pass away. People will come and they will go, but God remains steadfast from generation to generation. And y'all, this is so important. This is so important for us to know because all of us will have these chapter 13 moments in our lives where there's still, there's still much to be done, but the people or the things that we've depended on in the past, they can't take us into our future. And these moments when we experience them, they are opportunities to remind ourselves of who the real hero is. And I know, I know enough people in this room, some of you right now, you're afraid, 
you're anxious, you're maybe even angry because you've discovered that your journey forward isn't going to look like you thought it was going to look. You know, maybe there's some, some people that you thought were going to be a part of that journey, but now you know they're not going to be a part of it. Maybe jobs have changed. Maybe finances have changed. Maybe you thought, hey, at least I have my health, and that's changed. Hear me today. God's promises have not changed one bit. God remains steadfast. Have you ever, have you ever been driving with your GPS on, and, and then there's a I don't know, there's a wreck ahead or, you, or you, miss a wrong, you miss a turn and the GPS says that word recalculating. By the way, pro tip, uh, my wife figured out you can change the accent on that voice. So she changed hers to a British accent. Whole new experience. It's great. At that point, in that recalculating point, your route has changed, but your destination remains fixed. It has not changed one bit. And if you walk with God for more than about five minutes, there's going to be some times of recalculating, isn't there? But if God is your hero, if he is the one you are counting on and depending on and following, your destination has not changed. It remains fixed. Didn't Jesus say? Jesus said, heaven and earth itself will pass away before my word passes away. It's sure. It's certain. And that's exactly what God reminds his people of in verse 6. So let's skip ahead a little bit to verse 6. It says, All the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon to Misropath Maim, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. So in verse 6, God asks the Israelites to plan with faith. Because he's their hero. They can do that. God says, I want you to allot these lands that you have not yet occupied. And so you can imagine their their reaction. They're like, wait, wait, wait. We haven't even occupied those lands yet. They're not ours, and our general is retiring. How can we allot these specific lands to specific people? Faith. God says, faith. That's how I've told you. I've said I will do it. I've told you I will drive them out. And God is telling them, I want you to believe me with your actions. Believe me with your actions. Early in the book, even back in the first chapter, God gave Joshua this principle. He said, every place your foot treads, I have given you. So you have to put feet to your faith, Israel. You got to get those little legs moving into enemy territory and every place you set your foot down, once you set your foot down there, you will understand, I already gave it to you. It was already done and I did it. And we've seen that principle played out in battle after battle, haven't we? Whether it's crossing the flooded Jordan River or marching around Jericho, we've seen it played out over and over. And here, here God is saying the same principle applies for living in the land as you had for conquering the land. It's still just walking by faith. You see, when when God is your hero, no matter what season of life you're in, when God is your hero, his promise is sufficient enough for your action. His promise is sufficient enough for your action. No matter what season, no matter who's coming and going, you must still act 
on the promises of God. Now, I find the timing of this so instructive. We're supposed to notice where we are. Remember, so here we are, chapter 13. God is asking them to put their feet to faith after VJ Day, after the victory, the military victory has been won. They sit victorious in this beautiful land. They've got more than they ever thought they would have, especially as they were wandering around in the wilderness. And God says, now, now you need to remember that my promise is sufficient enough for your action. And I can't help but thinking some of us need to hear that today. Some of us need to hear that his promise is sufficient enough for your action, not because you're in a crisis, but because you're happy as a clam and more comfortable maybe than you ever thought that you would be. When the battles are over, when the crisis is over, is God still your hero? Are you still living for his promises? And let's be clear. We got to be clear about what God's promises are because we get kind of confused sometimes. So I hope you know this. The promises of God are not a good career, a big comfortable house, a certain standard of living, two vacations, 2.5 well-adjusted happy kids. All God's promises, every single one of God's promises revolve around his glory and his eternal kingdom. The Bible says there will come a day where every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and all the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And just like he told Joshua, there is yet much land to possess. Isn't there? Isn't that true where we live? There is yet much land to, to possess when it comes to God's kingdom. God's kingdom is here in part. It is here in so many ways, but it is not yet here in full. So, so think about this. Think about what God's telling them to do because there's a, there's a parallel here. God is telling them to allot specific lands to specific people in faith before they have full possession, possession of it. Well, isn't that exactly where we live today? When it comes to God's kingdom, there is still much left to be done in God's kingdom. But he doesn't say, okay, wait, wait till I come again. Wait till my kingdom is here in full. And then you live as if it's true. No, no, no. He says, live as if it's true now. Now, right now, God is asking you to allot specific things in your life for his kingdom. As if his kingdom is already here in its fullness. Specific things in your life. Your bank account, your Sunday mornings, your time off, your Tuesday afternoons, your marriage, your parenting, your profession, your whole life. God is saying, allot it to me in faith. You have to believe now that my promise is sufficient enough for your action. Men and women, live your whole life as if God will do everything he said he will do. That's how we live, as if God is our hero. So what's stopping you? What's stopping me? Well, that brings our next question. Who's the enemy? Who is the real enemy in our lives? Now, World War II, it was clear. It was easy. We got the allies. They're the good guys. We got the Axis powers. They're the bad guys. And the end of the war, we won. You lose. Ding dong, the witch is dead. This is great. But in our walk with God... Things are they're not always so clear. 
Let's pick it back up in verse 8. He says, With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites, received their inheritance, which Moses gave them, beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So he hops next to these eastern tribes, the tribes that are going to settle east of the Jordan. And so you may remember, but at the beginning of Joshua, here they are, they're on the east side of the Jordan, and they got to cross over to the west side, and that's where the, the promised land is, and that's where all the battles are going to start. And so they're camped out on the east side, about to cross, and God told them, hey, I want you to cross over, and I want you to go set foot on every piece of land over there. And a few of these tribes said, do we have to? I mean, can we just stop here? Here seems good enough. And you can hardly blame them. Listen, y'all, these people, they had only known wilderness their whole life. Unsurvivable desert. Their whole life, that's all they known. And this land on the east of the Jordan, it's great. It is rich and it is lush. And so in today's terms, y'all, it had great schools. It had a beautiful neighborhoods, a prosperous economy. Yay, even a Costco and an In-N-Out burger. One day, Tyler, maybe one day. Plus, you know what's on the other side of the river? All the big bad guys, all, all the giants, the huge giants are on the other side of that river. And so they're like, this, this is great. This must be God's will for our lives. The problem is, God's purpose and his promise was the whole land, and that was all on the other side of the river. And y'all, regardless of what was over there, God said, that's where I'm going. God said, I'm crossing that river, I'm heading over to the promised land. But these tribes, they didn't want to go with God. Simply put, they were more concerned with their comfort than God's promise and God's purpose. Okay, so let's pause here. Let's ask, okay, what was the enemy that kept these tribes from settling west of the Jordan? Was it some mighty army? Was it the Canaanites or the Amorites or the Termites or some other kind of ite? Was it lions and tigers and bears? Oh my. No. I think the, the text is wanting us to see that maybe, just maybe, the enemy is not something external. Maybe the enemy is something else. And then in verse 13, we see that whatever this enemy is, it didn't go away at the end of the war. Verse 13, Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites and the Maacathites, but Geshur and Maacath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Y'all, the text is setting off alarm bells. Danger, danger, er, er, er. be warned. The same thing is repeating itself over and over and over again. Once again, these same tribes are stopping short of doing all that God asked them to do. And I'm not saying we can't, I, I sympathize with them. You know, maybe they're, they're thinking, hey, there's no need to go all this way. I mean, this is, this is good enough, isn't it? Y'all, maybe they're just tired and weary of a long war. Maybe they're afraid that without Joshua, they can't do it. You know what? Maybe they're just thinking, hey, let someone else do it. I deserve a break. Whatever the reason, we see the real enemy. It's not some army. It is their own selfish, faithless hearts. 
Sin is the real enemy. And sin leads them over and over again to what I call Burger King obedience. Remember the old Burger King tagline? Have it your way. You know, you like this part of the land, not that part of the land. No problem, just have it your way. And I think if we're honest, we have to admit, we, we live in an age of Burger King obedience, don't we? we? We've normalized picking and choosing the parts of the Christian life that we want to follow. And so we read things clear, repeated in the Bible over and over again. Things like, don't give up meeting together. Things like, hey, God has given you a gift. Use it to serve other people. Things like, go and make disciples. And then we tack on some little, a little added notation at the end, something like, if I have time. If it fits with my life right now or, or when I'm in a better financial situation. Understand, men and women, when we do that, we misidentify the enemy. Because anything, the enemy is not anything external. It's not your job or your checkbook or some circumstances or even that church way back when that hurt your feelings. The battle is in your heart. The enemy is unbelief. Is God God? Are his promises sufficient enough for your action? Yes. So it's time to put feet to your faith. And to the extent you don't believe that, to the extent you don't believe that God is the hero, or frankly, you, you don't even care, those are the moments you stop short. You know, one day we're, we're going to be in the eternal state with all believers from all places and all times that have ever lived, ever existed. And you know what? I think there's going to be some things about our time and our culture that will absolutely shock them. I think maybe the, the biggest among those is we got many, many Christians, many Christians living in our culture who have no intention of ever making disciples. I mean, one of the clearest commands in Scripture, we have a name for it, the Great Commission, and we've normalized people spending their whole life, their whole life, decades in church as a Christian with no intention of ever going and making more disciples. So lots of people say, you know, hey, I'll show up at church, I'll give, I'll give some money, I'll eat at the potluck, but... That making disciples part, listen, that's the outskirts of obedience. That, that's the boonies. That's the job for, can't someone else do that part? Not me. You know what? Or maybe there's some sin issue that you normalize. You excuse just because it's normal. I mean, everyone gossips. Yeah, yeah I mean, maybe, maybe I struggle with my anger from time to time. Maybe I drink too much from time to time. But you know what? Life is stressful. Everyone does it. It's fine. You know, how do... I find myself asking, how do we do that? How do we see the plain, clear instructions of a God who loves us, who sent his son for us, and then just hit ignore like it's a telemarketing call or something? I'll tell you how I do it. Maybe you're more spiritual than me. Here's how I do it. I actually use my obedience to justify my disobedience. I say, yeah, yeah, I know, God, but have you seen all the other stuff I'm doing? I don't know if you know this, God. I'm a pastor. I'll be happy to send you my resume, you know, just send me your email address. And so because I'm doing this and this and this, and I don't need to worry about all that other stuff I don't want to do, I'm excused from that. And it's just like, it's just like these tribes saying, you know, we've taken most of the land. We don't have to go to the outskirts. I mean, who cares about that out there? The text has a warning for us today. And it comes in just three 
three little words, to this day. Those are ominous words in their text. The text is telling us that their disobedience lingers. It sets down roots and then it grows. So it didn't create some immediate crisis in the moment. It, you know, it's not like all these podunk towns invaded and overtook the Israelites or anything. No, no, no. It's, it's actually, in some ways, it's worse than that. For generations, these consequences are going to continue. And we know from the rest of the Old Testament that, that Israel will adopt the ways and the gods of these Canaanites that remain. We know that these people will, will pull Israel's hearts away from God over and over again. And we know these eastern tribes, listen, these eastern tribes are always going to struggle. They're always going to struggle with Burger King obedience. We also know that these are going to be the first tribes taken into exile for their disobedience. And men and women, that is why Judges 13 isn't filled with parties and celebrations and people smooching. It's because the real enemy remains. Sin has yet to be conquered. So now is not the time to rest. Now is not the time to get lazy. We are still in the middle of a war. So what do we do? I mean, a lot of times I know how to, how to fight the external enemies, how to fight an army. How do we fight the internal war? Well, the text gives us two things, two things. This is how you live in the land with God as your hero fighting the enemy of sin. Remembrance and relationship. Remembrance and relationship. Verse 8 through 33 is, we're going to see this a lot in what's left of Joshua, a long list of names that are hard to pronounce. Most of these names are allotting lands, specific lands to specific tribes in the future. But sprinkled throughout that, sprinkled throughout the, the future and what's coming next are repeated allusions to past victories. See, God, God is wanting these tribes to bring their past into their future. He wants them to remember the, the covenant love and the faithfulness of God that showed itself in their past so that they will know that same love, that same faithfulness goes with them into the future. You know what? It's the same for you. It's the exact same for you. When you're debating whether to continue to follow God, even to the outskirts of obedience, remember his kindness. Remember his generosity to you. Remember the times that he has provided in your past, when the times that he's helped you through some obstacle you could never overcome on your own. Remember your salvation. How God sent his perfect son to live the life you couldn't live and then die your death for you. In order to move forward, look back and you'll remember who, who your hero is. And you'll know you can trust him moving forward. So we remember and then next we, we find what I think is really the heart of the matter in this chapter. God mentions it twice. He mentions it in verse 14 and in verse 33. Let's read verse 33. It says, To the tribe of Levi, Mo Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord of God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. So the Levites are going to be different than any other tribe gang. They don't get, uh, so they're, they're the priests. 
And, and so they don't get a piece of real estate. Uh, instead, they're kind of spread throughout the land so they can uh, minister and focus on the work of the ministry. And so God provides for them in other ways. So things like, you know, they don't have a bunch of their own land to grow crops and food. And so a portion of the meat offerings is set aside to provide for the priest. And so offerings like the burnt offering, the meal offering, the thanks offering, the trespass offering, part of that animal would go to the Levites to provide for them. And what, what the chapter is doing here, it's contrasting the Levites from those eastern tribes. Think about this. Think about those eastern tribes. They wanted real estate instead of a relationship. God said, I'm, I'm heading west across that river. And they said, well, we'd rather just stay here in this land. The Levites don't get real estate, but instead they get a relationship. God himself is their portion. And men and women, this, in the end, this is God's desire for all of us. The New Testament tells us that God desires a whole kingdom of priests, not just some priests. Under the new covenant, he wants all of us to be Levites. It doesn't say anywhere in the New Testament, it doesn't say anything about a kingdom of Reubenites or a kingdom of Gadites. We're a kingdom of priests. And God is our portion Let's look. Let's look at 1 Peter 2.9. This is what it says to all believers. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. There it is. You're a Levite. Every single one of us who's put their faith in Christ is a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. I hope you know. I hope you know God doesn't want to just plop you down in some piece of real estate in the Middle East or even in White House, Texas. He wants you to be his and him to be yours. He wants a relationship with you. It keeps going that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called you out of your darkness and brought you into the light. He has always been your hero. He's the one that did it. You didn't pull yourself out of darkness. He did it for you. But I think there's still a question that remains if we're, if we're honest with ourselves. Because, y'all, I, I still love that Burger King sometimes. I still practice my Burger King obedience. So how? How can we enter into a relationship with God as long as the enemy of sin remains? If you're planning to say, okay, okay, I'm going to defeat the enemy of sin myself. No more Burger King obedience for me. Full obedience from here on out. Listen, you're kidding yourself. You're not the hero. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 helps us understand the book of Joshua. In fact, it talks about Joshua. And it says we're supposed to notice. We're supposed to notice how Joshua, this great leader, can lead them most of the way, but not all of the way. How they obey sometimes and fail many other times. How it, how it always seems so close and yet so far away. It explains how, why chapter 13 is not victory over Japan day. Let's read Hebrews 4, verse 8 and 10. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So if all God had for us was a chunk of real estate, then Joshua would have ended with the big celebration and the smooching and nothing but rest from there on out. But there was something greater God had in mind. Verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's a greater rest. There's something bigger, but rest from what? Verse 10. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There is a rest from works. And in the context, he means works-based righteousness. From me, depending on my own perfect obedience, of me having to bat a thousand every time to have a relationship with God. He's saying that Joshua is showing us instead of depending on your perfect obedience, you get to depend on the perfect obedience of someone else. That's the victory. That's the rest that God intends for you and for me. Skip ahead a couple verses, verse 15 and 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So this is talking about Jesus. There it is. Jesus is the perfect high priest. He is the perfect Levite in perfect relationship with God. It wasn't me. It was Jesus. But one who is in every respect, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He lived without sin. He defeated the real enemy. Full, total obedience. Jesus never even went to Burger King. Verse 16, as a consequence of what Jesus did, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of Jesus and because of his grace, we get a relationship with God. We can draw near with confidence. We got a couple babies in the service. Picture a baby. Anytime you're holding a baby, you know, and a stranger walks up, that baby may turn away or may even cry and get scared. But if mom or daddy walks anywhere close, man, that baby leans out and latches on because that's the closest relationship that child has. That's the picture in Hebrews. You can draw near with confidence because your relationship with God is as close as Jesus' relationship with God. Men and women, I hope you know this this morning. God isn't your hero because he gives you some real estate. He is your hero because he gives you relationship. He conquers the real enemy. And because he has done that, you can trust him. You can follow him wherever he is leading you. His promise is sufficient enough for your action. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.